You're listening to the Far Side with Founders and Leaders podcast. The podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look of some of the world's most amazing founders and leaders, looking at their journeys and how they got to where they are today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Far Side with Founders and Leaders podcast. Today, I am super excited to be joined by Julia Seleski, who is CEO of a tech company called Legal. So, Legal simplifies legal operations uh, with their market-leading technology. It's a really amazing platform that is being used by legal companies all over the world. Um, Julia is a serial entrepreneur, so she's founded not only this business, but another company called Crowd Justice. So we'll get to talk to her about both the vision that she's had for, for both companies and some of the things that have made her the success that she has been up until today. We'll also talk about the legal market and you know, how it is behind uh, the curve with tech stack comparatively to most other places, for example, fintech. Um, so for all this and loads, loads more, I really hope you'll enjoy this one. Sit back and enjoy. Hello, Julia, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for giving up your, your time on what is no doubt a busy schedule as, as always. Um, so I thought we'd jump straight in um, because you've you've got a, a really sort of interesting sort of career path up until now and have been, uh, I think, a, a founder of a business from quite an early stage in your career um, as well. So I'm keen to talk about uh, you know where where you where it all started. You know, you you started off obviously in university, um, studying sort of various things, but including sort of you know the the legal sector, um, and then you know getting in working with the uh, the UN. So some really interesting interesting places where you've had some I'm sure interesting experience. But if you could perhaps take us through from you know where your interest in sort of the legal sector all started and. Uh, take us through to where you are today with with legal. Yeah, sure. So, gosh, I I, I think uh, you said I started at university, but that that would have made me um, a, a child prodigy, I guess. <laughs> um, I um, yeah, I guess so. I'm from the US originally, and um, I came to the UK originally to do um, some so a university like my my third year of university, junior year abroad, as they say in the US. And um, I essentially stayed. And one of the reasons that I went into law candidly was because as an American, law school is so expensive and it's so long. And here, the uh, Linklater is a big firm was like, oh, you know, we'll pay for your law school, which is very uh, normal thing for firms to do here. But to me, that was like a mind blowing thing. <laughs> Someone would pay this like wildly expensive um, education uh, piece. So I did that, and um, that's how I started. That's how I started in law, and I hadn't studied it as um, as an undergraduate. I did the conversion course and and um, the vocational courses that they have that uh, Linklater did indeed pay for, and but I had studied a lot of politics, philosophy, economics, and I um, I ha- had always been really enamored with the idea of justice, of like cross-border um, problems, political, legal, um, however they may come. And so the UN had always been 
kind of high on my list as an aspirational yeah. place to work. And I took, um, they, they do these exams for young professionals, which I took and and that's how I got into the UN um, as a lawyer, um, first for doing war crimes um, uh, work and then doing international trade law. And so that's a trot through, I guess, of how I came to law and um, my pre-startup, my pre-startup journey. Yeah, okay, nice, very good. And um, by the sounds of it, a a good sort of baptism into the the world of of sort of le- legal as it is, and the some of the challenges that that sort of are faced in in the sector. Um, so one of the things I was, I was really interested to to sort of understand is looking at that journey in terms of um, you know where where you've been and to where you are now. There will obviously been you know lots of lots of challenges and lots of sort of changes that you've seen over time. So what what sort of things have you seen um, sort of happen over the the course of your career to date that have changed in in sort of the legal services specifically in in the area that you're focused on? Yeah, sure. So I guess um, what, what I when I first started off as um, as a lawyer, I actually didn't really think about technology at all. It was a completely alien topic to me, and I you know I used the tools that were mandated at a law firm um, at the UN. Um, similarly, you know, I just I, I followed the path, uh, so to speak. And I guess one of the the, the big project that I was working on when I left the UN was around cross-border dispute resolution online. So how do you, if if you're a consumer in one country and you buy something from another country and you have a dispute, how do you resolve that online cross-border? And there's not, there, the UN's view or all of the countries that constitute the UN are like, this is a big problem that needs solving. And I started to see that the way we were solving that at this macro level was like heavy-handed and actually that you could think about this more from first principles around like, actually, as a consumer, how do I solve that problem? And am I going to be using some like global disputes framework or actually am I going to be using like my credit card chargeback scheme? Yeah. So I guess what I the, the way that I ended up pivoting my career into tech was by trying to look at the problem in a, in a different way. And I think to your question around what's changed over the course of that journey is in a way it's hard for me to say because I don't know when I started out what the standard was and where it is today. I really started by looking at what is the what are the problems that people are trying to solve in my context and then context, this big global problem of actually how do people access legal services and starting to think about, okay, how, how do we change that over time? The, the, or how do we change that in a way that makes more sense on the ground. Yep. What I've seen over the last couple of years, and I think this is true of all sorts of industries, but there has been a huge learning curve in the legal space in terms of technology adoption post-COVID or during COVID or whatever. And that is, it's, it's both a trite thing to say, but it's also in the legal services space. This is an industry that is um, way behind peer industries like financial services in terms of technology yeah. and has actually rapidly, rapidly, I wouldn't say they have, we have caught up in this industry, but we are making a lot of ground up because for the first time, technology has actually become mission critical to how people deliver legal services in a way that pre-COVID you could kind of get away with not. Yeah, absolutely. And I've certainly seen that in terms of, um, you know, in, in our business, the the fact that 
legal services companies are are as you say massively behind the the curve and really now playing catch up i think with things like sort of blockchain coming to the forefront of um of technology and that for me seems like something that's really helpful and useful within sort of legal services to have have things like that so have you seen seen things like that sort of you know, adding value to, to sort of you know legal services being able to implement things like sort of blockchain and the evolution of of tech to to really sort of make it work the short answer is no and i think the the reason is that law firms have been and the legal industry has been um sufficiently far behind the technology adoption curve that the thing that's being adopted now is not highly innovative um web3 based buzzword based technologies lots of law firms talk about it and some law firms have like experiments around small innovations there um or small projects there but fundamentally we're talking about people that fax things still today. We're talking about people, a lot of the firms we work with take um, telephone payments as like one of their primary ways. Like this is really about digitizing a sector from the ground up. And so I think there's a lot of excitement around new technologies, but I think that's still a few years down the line. I think we're, we're still in, in V1. It seems to me, I've got, I've got a, um, a close friend who was actually away the birthday uh, party with her last last weekend. I'll keep her name out of it, um, but uh, she, probably, she probably doesn't want it broadcast across everywhere. Um, but she she works in uh, for for a firm, and she is responsible for a lot of their um, now digital transformation and change. And one of the biggest challenges that they have is that the firm are a, a very old school firm. Um, and they're not uh, as on board with a lot of the digital advancements and technology changes. There's a lot of old school people who want to continue to do it in the way that they've done it because they don't see it as broken. Um, so they're not investing the money into to it. And that's that's, I suppose, a fairly common thing across the entire sector. Absolutely. And you should give me her name so that I can sell something to her. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I think that's that's both the blessing and the curse, right? That's why there's a big opportunity space here. That's why there's been a slower adoption curve, because the existing structures work for people, like people make money out of them. Um, it works. But I think what's become really clear to firms, both over COVID, but also because of some other economic pressures and competitive pressures, is that the firms that are going to succeed in the future are the ones that are delivering like very high quality, very transparently delivered and very um, cost effective services to people. And that's other industries have brought that expectation in. But also, um, I think firms have also really started leaning into client experience in a way that all other industries probably have already thought this through. But in the legal space, this is becoming quite, um, it's coming more to the fore. And technology assists everything from better client experience to better better margins and, and increasing your, your top line. And I think there's a, there is an adoption curve there, but I think your friend's firm, like many other firms, will be somewhere on that curve. And as new generation of of um, of people come through, then some of those thoughts change. But also, we see a lot of um, we see a lot of firms where there was a way of doing things, and people have changed because they see 
the benefits that technology can bring. Yeah, absolutely. There's got to be benefits benefits to it, and it can't just all be about um, things like billable billable hours and this sort of you know this um, this witchcraft that is sort of legal services and legal legal speak to regular lay lay people like me who don't understand any of it. So I, I think that adoption is is definitely sort of coming through, and it's something that we're we're seeing. Um, now you've obviously so as we mentioned you've you've started um your journey as a as a founder sort of you know, rel- relatively sort of quickly into your your career um having had you know a few experiences in other places before and then you, you sat set up your your first um business which was crowd justice so talk to me about that and you know you're spotting sort of a, a gap in in the market or something that was broken uh, and looking to try and fix it yeah, so it's it's really just a um, a continuation of this idea that I saw that um, there's a lot of people trying to solve the access to justice problem and to give a sense, you know, there is a huge, something like two thirds of people who need legal advice don't get it. And that's for all sorts of different reasons. But the thing that I saw as being probably most critical is the reason most people don't get it is you called it witchcraft, which I actually think is one of the reasons people are scared of it. But the second, or they don't identify that they have a problem. But the second thing is funding and it's expensive and it's something where um, if you don't have a lot of means, you're probably not going to want to spend your disposable income on a lawyer. Uh, And so crowd justice was born out of this idea that there was a solution that I could see that would help more people access more legal services through telling their story, raising funds from from the crowd and enabling um, that person to get or that group to get legal advice. And the thing that was unique about crowd justice that is unique about crowd justice is funds raised go directly to lawyer client accounts and we automate compliance on those funds. And so it's not like, hey, I'm Joe Bloggs and I think I've got a legal case. It's actually, I've spoken to a lawyer, they're willing to act for me. This is going to be something that really leverages my ability to, to move forward. And as a result, um, through crowd justice, something like um, 12 or 15 Supreme Court cases have been fully or partly funded. Lots of individuals have wow. contributed to things that have really changed the law. Um, I think over... Um, over 700,000 people have given money and and therefore been able to see, um, feel like they're a part of the legal system. So yes. that was, um, I, f- I feel like that's, that's hit a, a really important spot within the access to justice ecosystem. Yeah, nice. And uh, certainly it's something that I think was, was needed. There's as you say, it's it's very different to in the UK market as well, comparatively to your your homeland in the states, whereby uh, it's a it's a more mature market over there. I I believe anyway. I could be completely wrong. You might tell me that that absolutely it's not, but it seems like it's a more mature market in terms of li- li- consumers using legal services over in the states, comparatively to to here in the UK. I don't know if I'd use the word mature. I think it's, um, I think the UK, the UK does really, really well. And the reason why crowd justice has been able to function effectively in the UK is because there's a lot of safeguards against taking um, vex, what's called vexatious litigation. So essentially taking a legal case that doesn't really have any merit. In yeah. the US, you are safeguards around that. Okay. And 
So there's a very much different dynamic at play, I think. And in the UK, the fact that to use crowd justice, you have to have instructed a lawyer creates a very high quality threshold. And so that's something that I think one of the UK legal system is um, is has built in a lot of safeguards that enables the the system to work very effectively. So I might actually argue that things sometimes work work better here. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, it sounds, sounds like it. At least we're doing something right. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, what compelled you to to go from being in sort of legal services to being a tech founder effectively yeah it's funny I didn't um I didn't think of myself as a kind of a tech founder I thought oh, I see this problem I'm gonna I, I feel like I could solve it I I, I worked um I, I sort of cut back to four days a week so that I could work on this as a project on the side and I realized I'm I'm a kind of an intense person and I realized if I was going to do this, I needed to do it properly. And that was going to be not just, you know, Friday and a weekend. This was going to be full time. And I time boxed a period of time and I just threw everything at it and um, and then raised some money. And, and the rest was sort of um, the startup journey. But uh, yeah, I went in very naively. Eyes, eyes were not wide open as to what it meant <laughs> founder what it meant to run a company um so yeah lo- steep learning curve steep learning curve <laughs> and you you obviously you're glutton for punishment because not only have you uh done it with crowd justice you've then gone on to set up your your second tech business which is legal so can you tell us a bit more about that yeah so um what i started to see at crowd justice we worked with um 150 200 law firms that actually the, a lot of the operational processes that they had, and we could see it very clearly because we're processing funds for them, were broken. And I um, am nothing if not like excited to solve other people's problems um, and saw that there was like a big opportunity in that space. So um, started digging into it, initially thought we would just expand the crowd justice value proposition and then I just realized this is a very big adjacent opportunity. So uh, launched legal um, to, to service that opportunity. And that was about three years ago. Um, and what legal does is digitizes uh, the back office operational processes of law firms. So everything from compliance, onboarding payments, um, it's very workflow driven. So we try and, and use um, a lot of these manual processes that law firms have, which actually create bad um, client experiences, create like a lot of cost for the law firm, but also don't enable the law firm to really understand their client base. So they don't have, you know, if you're doing all of this stuff manually, you don't have the data that it generates that enables you to, to actually understand your client base and provide them a really good experience. So yeah, that's what legal does. That's what that's what my focus is today. Nice. And so you mentioned um, earlier and, and just there as well, talking about the the client and customer experience, which is, uh, um, <clears throat> I think, becoming, as you say, more 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 and more prominent uh, in the world we live in with pretty much all of the, the products that we we have and interact with, whether they're digital services or not. So how are you? And again, you said that it seems that legal services are more focused now on that sort of customer service and customer and client experience. So what changes are, are being implemented in the the ecosystem that you see that are driving that towards better customer experience? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there's a few things. And one is that firms are starting to think about the core service they provide is legal services, obviously. So they provide legal advice, et cetera. And I think that's always been seen in the past as like, that's what we're good at. That's what we do. But without necessarily thinking from soup to nuts, like what is the client's experience of going through that? So I go back to your phrase of witchcraft. I think that is a lot of people's experience. And I think firms are starting to understand that both from uh, acquiring customers, retaining customers, but also from being able to upsell and to sort of think about, hey, you instructed us for this um, uh, fundraising transaction, for example, probably a few months down the line, you're going to need some corporate advice or you're going to need some employment advice. And it's really starting to think about what are you, what do you as a customer need through that whole journey? And I think what we're starting to see is um, hiring people like chief customer officers, never seen that before in legal, starting to invest in technology so that the end client feels like they're getting good value for money. Um, there's a lot of client pressure on that, um, which is coming from other industries and is coming from an expectation that, no, you don't do all this stuff manually that you're charging me per hour or per minute for when I know that can be automated. So it's forcing law firms to come up with new business models as well, because the billable hour, which you also referenced, is, I mean, that's pretty, um, uh, th that's the status quo. And I think that's hard to fully shift. But it is something that doesn't necessarily correlate with did I am I paying for an outcome that I want to achieve as a client, or am I paying for someone to like do some witchcraft work behind the scenes and I yeah. don't really know what that is. So I think we're starting to see like a slow but really fundamental shift in the way legal services are delivered, and technology is going to be really core across that shift to enabling lawyers to maintain their revenue streams and also deliver that client experience that their clients expect. And that's a hard, um, that's a hard triangulation, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really difficult to try and get the balance right, I suppose, for, for all of those businesses out there to try and make sure they're not um, cutting off their, their left or right arm, but whilst trying to sort of you know, re regenerate and uh, make sure that their future fit ultimately in terms of what they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to your friend's example, you know, there's some um, there's some infrastructure there that can be that can be misaligned, sometimes incentive wise, because if you're at the top of the pyramid and actually today is good for you, succession planning in that way really requires vision and it requires a, a real thought to kind of the legacy of the firm and the sustainability of the firm. And we do see that the best firms really think about that very hard. Yeah, they do. Um, and so stating the obvious here, but you're you're a female founder um, in a, a market that's full of you know, certainly the tech market is firstly full of, um, you know, mostly male, male predominantly tech founders. Also, then in legal services, which is also very a male dominated environment, you've you've sort of stacked against the odds. The odds are stacked against you to, to a certain degree. Um, and you've you've had a number of successful fundraising rounds. You know, you've obviously taken one business from strength to strength, now doing the, the same again with the second. So um the obvious question is what what sort of challenges have you faced, you know, coming coming up against you with all of that, I say against you, um, to be so successful? I you know it's an interesting question. I get I get asked a version of this question every so often, and I don't really know how to answer it because yeah. I, 
I don't have anything to compare it to. I think um, I have, um, I you know, I have a great team. I have a lot of resilience. And I think um, with, with building a business, I think if you've got a decent idea and a good team and you're thoughtful about how you execute on that, um, I think that you can you can find a path. Um, it's uh, yeah, I think you can find advantages in it as well in terms of being being the underdog. Um, but certainly, I've had a lot of really good people around me, and I think actually a lot of um, a lot of really good investors that that are really thoughtful about their own biases, but also around how to elevate. Um, uh, elevate people that might not otherwise get a look in because um, because pattern matching has yeah. had, you know, often you're going to go for the for the guy that looks like you and um, yeah so I think I've been you know mix of luck and um, and tenacity <laughs> I'll say probably the tenacity uh, most certainly and I think that's a, it's, it's a key virtue for any any founder running a business you've got to um you mentioned be resilient right you're going to get lots of knockbacks um especially when you're doing things like sort of fundraising you're knocking on a lot of doors no matter what your background is um on the most part you say you're you're spending a lot of time knocking on those doors trying to to get people to listen because everyone's knocking on the same sort of doors so um having done as say as a second ago a few really successful fundraising rounds what do you feel has sort of helped you to succeed I, I mean, that's a good question. I personally, I really like fundraising, um, which is unusual, I think, in some respects amongst uh, founder friends, but I, I, um, I like the discipline of it. I like the feedback loops. I treat fundraising like a sales process and I have a funnel and I have, I it on my messaging and I really enjoy it I like getting the feedback um I like getting you know I like getting the knockbacks in that time because I think you learn about your business and fundamentally when you're building a business you're in it and every operational problem is is um you know you really think hard about it but when you're selling a business to the fundraising market they're looking at your business as as an asset and I find that like context switch really interesting and it, it it's a way of getting perspective on what you're doing. And so I um I don't know how to answer the question. I've been successful doing that. I think if your numbers are good, you're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna do okay when you fundraise. But I also think there's tactics around um treating it like a like a sales process that I'm um that I I've gotten I've gotten better at over the years. Yeah. It and it, it often it is uh, as you say, it's a sales process. You've got to sell yourself your business um and as you say if the, if the numbers stack up that's that's going to be a lot easier to get investment but in uh, early days often you don't necessarily have sort of the the numbers to to play with um you're still trying to prove sort of market fit and all those sorts of things so um it's as you as you've just said about being able to to sell the the vision and and what it is that you're trying to achieve and the problem you're trying to solve and making sure you've got founder, uh, founders, investors, sorry, that are aligned to that as well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The investor choice is a really important one. 
And and you've again you've built some successful businesses so far. So you've you've obviously you talked earlier about having a good team behind you working with with good people. So what's been your sort of your key to to building out that that team? How how have you gone about it? And what what successes have you had in terms of being able to get a good team behind you? Because you're absolutely right. It's it's pivotal to to running a good business. Yeah, I mean the it, it absolutely. I think it's the the key thing. Um, and how have I got about it by making lots of mistakes? <laughs> <laughs> Good, excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's taken. It's it's been a really big learning curve, and I think the hardest thing about um, sort of moving from you know early startup stage to mid startup stage to scale up is the and it's a it's a cliche, but it's true. The people you need at those stages change and so there's just like constant um constant change both in terms of what are you looking for when you hire someone how are you scaling yourself up to be able to make sure that you're getting people the right people at that stage and that you're also making sure you're still the right person for that stage so i think there's no magic sauce and i honestly make a ton of mistakes um i have made a ton of mistakes in in building that team but what i really uh, have gotten much better at is making sure that um, the one consistent is the values, making sure that people are values aligned, because you can have the most talented person in the world, but if they're not aligned with your core values, that person probably not going to work out in the in the short to medium term. Um, and then sometimes the business just changes really quickly. And, um, and as long as you've got someone, one of our core values is agility. And actually, if you've hired the right people, they'll move, they'll move with you um if they can and so um yeah my my big my big learning there has been really don't compromise on values yeah I, I think that's a really key thing as well as making sure you've got your values set and they're they're out there for everyone to see and then then they know what they're you know getting on board with as well so there's no sort of you know murky water or any other things like that whereby they're suddenly going well actually this isn't what I signed up to uh and it all ends in disaster at that stage. So you've got to make sure your your value proposition for your employees is is absolutely on point. So um, I think a really valuable lesson for anyone who's listening, who's uh, growing teams or a, a business, then making sure those things are aligned will will help uh, no end to to creating some sort of success. Definitely. And and so what do you um, what do you envision next then for for sort of legal? Where where do you go from here? Yeah, so we um we were lucky enough to close a fundraise in 2022. Um, and so we're really scaling up um across our team. We're scaling up across our customer base. We're doing a lot of really cool product innovation. Um, we're starting to experiment with international expansion. So we've got a big, big 2023 um planned. Um, and yeah, like every business, you know, um, we're thinking a lot more about um, how do we do that in a really sustainable, positive unit economics way. How do we make sure that we're um, we're growing sustainably? Um, yeah, it's there's there's a lot to do, and um, I like I actually like doing it in an environment of economic headwinds because I like I like building a real business that's going to be there for the future. Well, it will stand the test of time, won't it? And I think if you look at there's there's history to see that some of the 
you know, the most successful businesses that are out there at the moment were started in economic uncertainty. And, you know, those are often the ones that can pull through because there's a real value and a need for them if they're if they're in that that's as you say headwind of you know going again against the grain totally definitely um, and and for you um in terms of sort of way where you sort of take the the business are you looking at sort of other other products as well outside of sort of your your core offering you talked about sort of product innovation there is that that's something that's on the roadmap yeah so we've i mean it feels like the, one of the challenges and opportunities of the legal space is that there is so much you can do from a technology perspective. And so one of the kind of key things we're doing at the moment is um, because what we because our product is really workflow driven, it's really flexible and it services a lot of different use cases. There's the direction for us is both really expanding on the use cases that we can deliver through that through that through our core platform and also prioritizing some of the other really key pain points that we can solve within firms that and and do that in a way that's um uh structured strategic and and rigorous so that we don't pull ourselves in too many directions at once um there is a huge huge amount of opportunity in in the the space Amazing. Well, Julia, I look forward to seeing even more success coming through 2023. It sounds like it's going to be a really busy year for you. I, I think, by the sounds of it, every year is a busy year for you. I don't think there's any quiet years, are there? Um, you're not the sort of person that likes to sit still, uh, I get the feeling. Um, so, so, but yeah, I, I wish you all the success in everything you're doing and look forward to watching you know, eagerly for, for more sort of growth within the business and, and seeing what's next. And Thank you so much for for coming on and talking to me today to, to share some of your story. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Fireside with Founders and Leaders podcast. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have make sure that you hit the subscribe button now so that you can get alerted every time that we launch a new episode, meaning you'll never miss your favorite session. We really hope you can join us next time. And thanks again for listening to the Fireside with Founders and Leaders podcast.